So today I'm picking off uh, where, we, where, where I left off last week, picking up where I left off last week. Uh, last week we talked um, about what we believe about the Bible and uh, explored the extravagant claim that the Bible is not just words about God, but is the word of God himself. And we talked about what we mean by that and how that belief in turn leads to other claims about the Bible. It's necessity, it's sufficiency, it's clarity, it's authority. And um, I also spent a few minutes addressing the question of why you should trust the Bible, why you can trust the Bible, uh, particularly when there's many uh, other religions with other holy books that would claim that that is the authoritative word of God. So we talked a bit about why, uh, why we might trust the Bible. Uh, above those other claims. So um, if you weren't there, then I hope you still get a lot out of the sermon this morning. Uh, but it is the second part of a two-part s- s- sermon, really. So uh, you may want to listen to the podcast from last week to complete the picture if you weren't here, but you are here this morning. And now I want to start, really, by, uh, again, addressing the question of why we should care about what I'm going to talk about this morning, just like I did last week um, You know, why should we care about how we understand and interpret the Bible, which is what I'm talking about today. And again, for those of you who aren't Christians this morning or are exploring faith, uh, I am aware that in the sort of popular media, on TV, newspapers, etc., the Bible is often portrayed in a whole range of ways, as are Christians. And um, I don't know what your what your sort of preconceptions are about how we read the Bible as Christians and how we understand it. So I hope that today helps you to um, understand us a little bit better and perhaps to understand the Bible a little bit better and potentially uh, to take the claims that we make about the Bible more seriously than you might have done. But for those of you who are Christians, uh, you may be able to pick out this little cartoon behind me. Uh, I'll read the text just in case you can't read it. The guy lying on the floor is saying, don't bother me. I'm looking for a verse of scripture to back up one of my preconceived notions. And this is, um, this is getting at the point of, of why we're talking about this this morning. Uh, I want to read you a verse from the Bible to start us off. It's from the book of 2 Timothy. Uh, Paul, one of, the, one of the first Christians who wrote a lot of what's now New Testament, wrote a couple of letters to Timothy, who was his co-worker, looking after the church in Ephesus. And in his second letter to Timothy, chapter 2, verse 15, Paul writes this. He says, uh, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Rightly handling the word of truth. Have I got that text or have I missed this? I have a feeling I might have missed a slide. I think I had a book recommendation that I've skipped over. No? Never mind. It's 2 Timothy 2, chapter, 2, Timothy chapter 2 verse 15. I, I forgot to put it on the slide. Apologies for that. I'll read it once more. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Now, when Paul says the word of truth, he's talking about the scriptures that Timothy had. We could translate that as the Bible for, for our understanding today. And when he says do your best, uh, that's a sort of one way we can uh, translate that in English, but another way might be to um, make every effort, or another way might be to study hard. So Paul's encouraging Timothy to work hard, to study hard, to do his best, 
to handle the Bible rightly. So clearly then, it is possible to handle the Bible wrongly. Yeah? It's possible to not rightly handle the word of Scripture, but to wrongly handle the word of Scripture. So that's getting us to start to thinking about why we should care about this. It is possible to interpret the Bible wrongly. And I want to give you a few examples from history to provoke you a little bit and to illustrate why this is important. So uh, my first example is uh, from a man called John Owen. John Owen uh, wrote many of what are now considered Christian classics. He was a pastor and an author and a Bible teacher, and he, he wrote many profound works um, about the Bible. He also he was a Puritan, and he also lived at the time where scientists were starting to say that rather than the sun going around the earth, as people had always thought, that the earth actually goes around the sun. And John Owen rejected this, and he rejected it because of what the Bible says. Okay, so John Owen said this. He said, the late hypothesis fixing the sun at the center of the world is built on fallible phenomena and against the evident testimonies of Scripture. And the verse that uh, he particularly has in mind here is in the book of Joshua, where the Israelites are fighting uh, a battle, and God does a miracle and sort of stops the sun moving in the sky so they could finish the battle. And John Owen said, well, we see from Scripture that it's the sun that stops moving, not the earth. Therefore, the sun must go around the earth. That's what the Bible says. Here's another example by an American pastor, Richard Fuller. Um, he quoted Leviticus chapter 25, verse 44. You may buy male and female slaves from among the nations that are around you. And Richard Fuller said, well, God would never have permitted in Scripture what he considers to be sinful. The Bible says you can buy and sell slaves, therefore the slave trade is okay. He lived in the time of the slave trade in America a few hundred years ago. Okay. And the final one, they're sort of oh, maybe kind of a few hundred years ago, but I'll give you an example from just five years ago. It is again from America. Um, and five years ago, a pastor died in America because he was uh, bitten by a rattlesnake. And he died of the poison. And uh, it turns out that the church, people in the church have been holding the rattlesnakes in their services. I haven't seen Tim do that here, but it does go on in some churches. And so uh, the media interviewed one of the other pastors and said, after this, are you going to stop holding snakes? And he said, no, no, it's not dangerous to hold poisonous rattlesnakes because the Bible says in Mark chapter 16 that these signs will accompany those who believe. They will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. The Bible says it's fine. Now, my guess would be that none of you in this room hold any of those three beliefs that I've just quoted, but they are beliefs that have been held by people based on what the Bible says. So I think it's probably, I hope I'm making the case here that it's quite important to think about how we read the Bible, how we rightly handle the word of truth, because sometimes our interpretive decisions have significant consequences. In each of those three examples, the consequences were quite profound of those misreadings of the Bible. Okay? And this is because the Bible has such authority, and because it's God's word, we have to make sure that we're careful readers. So what I want to do this morning 
in the time I've got is to, to spend a little bit more time um, trying to show you why this is important. And you'll have to forgive me if I labour the point a bit, but um, I, I think it's true that often we do need a bit of convincing that thinking about how we interpret the Bible is really important. So I'll spend a bit more time doing that. And then I'm going to try and give us some principles of how we become good readers of Scripture who rightly handle the word of truth rather than bad readers of Scripture. And I'm going to finish by indicating how we can grow in this. Okay, so if at any point in the next 15, 20 minutes you start to feel overwhelmed by what I'm saying, hold on for the last five minutes and I'll try and, um, you know, help us to see how this is for all of us. And, and this is something we can all uh, grow in. I'm really sorry, can I have some water? I'm, I'm parching up, I forgot to bring some. Thank you. So first of all then, again, you know, why do we have to pay attention to interpretation? Because uh, we may say, what about the sermon you preached last week, Tim? What about the clarity of scripture that you spoke about? You said last week, and I'll quote myself, <laughs> you said last week that the most important things about our faith, the things that are critical for us to know and to follow Jesus, are clearly taught somewhere in scripture for those who are willing to ask for God's help and want to obey him. If that's true, why do we need to think about interpretation? And I do stand by what I said this time. Um, but I also clarified last week that although the central truths of our faith are clear, there are many other things that aren't so clear and aren't so easy to understand uh, and yet have significant consequences, like the examples I gave a few minutes ago. But a second objection may be forming in your minds. Okay, I, I'm with you so far, Tim, but why do we need to think about interpretation when we have the Holy Spirit? After all, didn't Jesus promise in John chapter 16, verse 13, that when the Holy Spirit came, he would lead us into all truth? We may think, after all, well, I, I read the Bible, and I believe it, and I try and take it seriously and obey it. Isn't that enough? Which is a fair question. Isn't it enough to read the Bible, Holy Spirit, me, the Bible, the Holy Spirit, read, believe, obey? Why do I need to think about interpretation on top of that? In fact, some of us may go further and say, in fact, isn't all this talk of interpretation a little bit suspicious? Isn't it just an attempt to avoid taking the Bible seriously? In my experience, we may say, when people talk about interpretation, they're just trying to avoid actually taking seriously what God says. They don't want to do it, so they interpret it to mean what they want it to mean. Interpretation is a game for scholars and a distraction for Christians. I wonder if you resonate with some of those feelings. After spending a couple of years uh, studying at university, I resonated with some of those feelings. Well, let me first say that I do really understand those thoughts and fears. There are, unfortunately, some Christians who like to treat the Bible as a sort of intellectual exercise and aren't really committed to obeying God. 
There are some who will talk of interpretation and use it to escape God's word rather than submit to it. I understand that. But to try and escape from interpretation and abandon that also leads to other insurmountable problems. I want to give you a few examples. For a start, one simple problem is that if we abandon interpretation, what do we do when two Holy Spirit-filled God-believing Christians disagree about what the Bible says. Even after much prayer, two Holy Spirit-filled Christians regularly do disagree about what the Bible says. And if there's no place for discussing how we should responsibly read the Bible and interpret it, we can never move forward in those situations. But more profoundly, and here I'll be a bit more provocative, more profoundly, if we deny the need for interpretation, then I think there's two things we're not taking seriously enough. First, we're not actually taking the Bible seriously, and I'll explain why. But also, we're not taking our own sin and our humanity seriously. And here's what I mean by that. Ah, yeah, I forgot to say. Text the question in. If you've got any questions about what I talk about this morning, then uh, we'd like to address those. And we'll either address those in the podcast or we'll address those next week as part of our morning together. So do text in your questions as I go and we will pick those up. So if we abandon interpretation, we're not taking the Bible seriously because God has chosen in his wisdom to give us his word through human activity. We talked about this last week. It's through the words and the writing of humans that God gives his word to us. And this means that as much as it's eternally significant, it's historically particular, by which I mean it was written in a certain time, in a certain place, by a certain person, in a certain context, in a certain style, for a certain purpose. It's historically particular. What I mean is this, okay, if I was to tell you a story and I was to start with once upon a time, blah, 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 and they lived happily ever after, okay, and then imagine you went out and told someone else that I told you a historically factual narrative about what happened last week. I would say, you haven't really taken me very seriously there because we all know that if I start with once upon a time, I'm not telling a historical story, I'm telling a fairy tale. Yeah, do you see what I mean? Another example, if I wrote a poem about my undying love for my wife and she read it and then took this as a factual account of how a relationship was going to be from now on or a scientific description of our relationship, again, I would feel slightly hurt by that and a little bit intimidated because she hasn't taken me seriously. That's not what I'm trying to communicate. And if we treat the Bible like that without taking the care to work out how am I meant to be reading this, we do exactly the same thing with God's word. Okay? That's what I mean about not taking the Bible seriously enough. We have to try and hear what the authors were trying to say. And this suspicion that um, interpretation makes the Bible say whatever you want it to say cuts both ways, actually. I know of some pastors who would say, 2 Peter chapter 3 says God is going to destroy the earth by fire. So it doesn't really matter if I destroy some of it now by 
global warming and all of that. I don't really have to take care of the earth because it's going to be destroyed anyway. That's what the Bible says. Well, I would suggest that such people are avoiding the responsibility of interpreting because they want it to say what they want it to say. Do you see what I mean? So actually, we can all play the game of avoiding God's word. Do you, yeah. Okay, secondly then, so we're not taking the Bible seriously enough, but also if we abandon interpretation, we're not taking our sins selfishly enough. Uh, I don't know about you. Well, I, I have my suspicions about you, but I'm certainly sure about me that my own sin and selfishness and my desire for an easy life will always incline me to read the Bible in a certain way. Normally, a way that confirms all my prior opinions and lets me leave, live the life I want to live. That's my tendency. Backs up my choices. And unfortunately, sometimes the protest of, I don't need interpretation, I have God's word and the Holy Spirit, fails to recognize that whereas God's word and the Holy Spirit are perfect, I bring a whole load of corruption to the mix that interferes with my attempts to hear God's word properly. So why we need to think about interpretation in the end, and this is why I kind of want to really land this point with you, is we need to think about it, not to escape from God's word, but so that we can submit to it. So that we can better submit to God's word. Okay? As I grow in knowing how to be a good reader, God's word is allowed to more deeply and more fully penetrate my heart and bring my life in submission to God. So, there you go. That's, that's why this matters. Because the Bible is historically particular. Because I am historically... If you, if you have glasses on this morning, you'll know that when you look at the world, you look through the lenses of your glasses. And that changes a little bit what you see. Well, we all have our lenses, whether we wear glasses or not. My upbringing, my culture, my background will affect the way I see, the way I read. Okay? We all have our lenses when we read the Bible. So interpretation is important because it helps me become aware of my lenses. And it's important because of my sin. So that's why this is important. I, I hope you understand me there, but text in questions if you don't. So how do we do this then? If we're convinced that this is important, how do we become good? How do we interpret the Bible properly? How do we interpret the Bible well? How do we become good handlers of the word of truth rather than poor handlers? Well, first of all, we have to be willing to obey God in Scripture. This may sound obvious to some of you, but it's really important. Unless in our hearts we really are submitted to God, unless he is our Lord and our King, then we are likely to try and bend Scripture to fit with our own preferences, just as we bend all of life to fit with our own desires. And so we have to try and come to a place as best we can, never perfectly, with all of our failings. But we have to try and come to a place of wanting to obey God's word. And uh, let's not kid ourselves, this is hard. I can almost guarantee that God's word will challenge some value or idea that you hold very precious. I can guarantee that it will challenge you to change the way you live. And if you're not willing to do that, then you will struggle to interpret God's word correctly. So the question, the rhetorical question we might want to ask ourselves is, am I willing to give up my worldview as I read scripture? Am I willing to set aside the way I understand things as I read scripture? If so, you'll become a better reader of scripture because you'll be prepared to hear God. 
Second, we have to rely on the help of God through the Holy Spirit. As we read, we pray that God would open our eyes and our mind, and uh, not just that we would understand, but that the Holy Spirit would change us as we read to be more like Jesus. So we become reliant on the Holy Spirit. But being willing to obey, whilst relying on the Holy Spirit, we also have to become a good reader, a responsible interpreter. And to be a good reader is to seek to understand the Bible on its own terms. The first question we must ask is, what did this mean to the people who wrote it? What was the original author trying to say to his original audience? We have to ask, what did this mean, before we can ask, what does this mean? Does that make sense? So I want to give you a few pointers for how we do this. How do we get a better grip on what did this mean become good readers. And I want to give you some examples to hopefully um, show you what I mean. Those who uh, wrote the Bible lived in a different world to the one that we do. For a start, none of them lived in the UK. They also lived a long time ago in a different culture, different geography. And so the better we can understand their world, the better we can understand what they were trying to say. Let me give you an example. Uh, the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, uh, at the start, there's a message to seven churches around Eastern Asia. And one of those churches was the church at Laodicea. I've got a little map here. There's Laodicea with a pin in it. So there was a short letter to this church. And um, one of the things that is said to this church is this. I know your deeds. This is chapter 15, um, verse 15, sorry. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Now, uh, I've heard many Christian teachers interpret the Bible like this. So what God's saying is, it's terrible to be a lukewarm Christian. Be hot, be passionate for God, or be cold and be totally opposed to God, but don't be a half-hearted Christian. God's going to spit lukewarm out of his mouth. Better to be cold. And, you know, you can sort of get into it at the time, but you might go away and think, that's a bit weird. Why would it be better to be totally opposed to God than to be a little bit half-hearted. Well, that difficulty fades away when we know a bit about the historical context of Laodicea. Look at Laodicea there. Can you see Colossae just below it? Right on the Lycus River. Colossae had fresh, cold water from the Lycus River that was refreshing and that was good to drink. So people went there for good, cold water. Hierapolis, just above it, was a place full of hot springs. So that was like an ancient spa. You went there for healing kind of hot water. So there was good hot water and good cold water. And poor old Laodicea was in the middle, had neither, and had, I'll, I'll quote someone who's researched Laodicea, he says that Laodicea had an international reputation for being nauseating because the water was lukewarm and loaded with chemicals. 
So what the author's saying is either have good cold water or good hot water. Don't have bad lukewarm water. Do you see? When we know that, that changes how we understand the text. And we can interpret it correctly. God is not saying that it's better to be, it's better to be totally opposed to him than to be half-hearted. He's saying be useful and cold and refreshing or useful and hot and healing. Don't be lukewarm and nauseating. If we don't know that, we miss the point and we misinterpret the Bible. So the historical context helps us. Another consideration that helps us is not only the historical context, but the literary context. What I mean by that is um, looking at the writing. So what sort of genre is it and style? What has the author just said? What does he go on to say? What's the main point he's trying to communicate? Here's another example. And this one's from Mark's Gospel. So you may know this story. In the 11th chapter of Mark's Gospel, Jesus uh, walks into Jerusalem. And on his way into Jerusalem, he sees a fig tree. He goes up to the fig tree and doesn't find any figs on it. It's not actually the season for figs, so there probably shouldn't have been any figs on it anyway. So he doesn't find any figs on it, gets really angry and curses the fig tree, then carries on into Jerusalem. On his way back out of Jerusalem, his disciples see the fig tree and see that it's withered up. And then they have a little conversation about that. What on earth is going on? Why is Jesus so angry about a fig tree? And, and why is there such a, why does Mark, who has only a small amount of space to write his story of Jesus, why does Mark include this weird story about a fig tree? What does that add? Well, if we look at the literary context, it helps us to understand. In between these two visits to the fig tree, Jesus goes into the temple and causes a scene, overthrowing tables confronting the Jews who ran the temple. And he accuses the Jews who ran the temple of not fulfilling God's plan for the temple. It was meant to be about prayer. They had made it about commerce and profit. It was meant to be for the Gentiles as well. They had made it a center of Jewish nationalism. Jesus went to the temple seeking the fruit, and there was no fruit. Do you see? And when we understand that, the fig tree starts to make sense. We then may learn that a fig tree is a metaphor often used in the Old Testament to represent the people of God, to represent Israel. So the fig tree incident starts to make sense to us. Jesus isn't, the whole point of the fig tree is that it's a picture of Israel. Jesus has come, there is no fruit. And all of a sudden, the withering of the fig tree takes on more weight for us. Just as the fig tree withered after Jesus came and found no fruit, so did the temple. And it was. It was destroyed in AD 70. Do you see? So paying attention to the literary context also helps us to be good readers of the Bible and not to think that Jesus just had a problem with fig trees. So just more briefly then, some other points I want to make. Uh, ask appropriate questions of the text. You wouldn't ask a scientist for some details about history. You wouldn't ask a historian for some details about science. You'd be asking inappropriate questions. And I've got a, I've got a story about this. Um, me and my wife go to Wales for a holiday uh, every year to the same cottage. 
Um, but one year we went, and I always have a little browse of the bookshelf because there's normally some new, some new ones in and some old ones out. And there was this book one year on sex and marriage written by a Christian. So I thought, okay, I'll have a flick through. This might be interesting. And uh, it was a little bit odd at first. The first chapter or two was a little bit odd, but I didn't quite know what was going on. But as I got into the book, I realized um, that this guy was building a case to say we need to get rid of monogamy. We, uh, we, we don't need one wife each. Actually, we should have as many sexual partners as we feel inclined to, really, given certain parameters. And this is written by a Christian. Um, he was also a minister. And, uh, and, so this, uh, and then the real shock came at the end of the book where he sort of said, oh, if you've read this book and you're interested in the swingers' lifestyle, then please get in touch with me. I live in this part of the country. So my first question was, I need to have a word with the guys who own the cottage because I know them and ask what this book's been doing in their uh, shelf. But, but the evidence that this guy used from the Bible was to point to Old Testament passages and say, well, Solomon had more than one wife. David had more than one wife. Ergo, I can have more than one wife. Well, Old Testament narratives normally just tell the story of what happened. They don't give any indication of whether it's right or wrong, whether it should have happened or shouldn't have happened. They're not there to teach moral principles. Say, if I want to work out what the Bible says about whether I can have more than one wife or not, I don't, I, I, if I ask that question of Old Testament narratives, I'm asking inappropriate questions. That text cannot tell me that. I need to ask that question of other texts that are designed to teach me about human sexuality. Okay, so ask appropriate questions. And finally, seek biblical balance. Some issues are complex, and different bits of the Bible have different parts of the picture to give us. Uh, I preached a year ago or so now on um, human responsibility and us making real choices and God's sovereignty, God being in control. And I tried to show then that the danger is to take our favorite verses and only see one part of the picture, whereas we actually need to take the whole of the Bible into account for a balanced picture. So that's my final sort of indication of how we're good readers, really. Take the whole biblical picture into account. So there are a few ways that we can grow to be more responsible readers. So there we go. That's some start on how we interpret and understand the Bible. But I want to finish by addressing the question of what this means for you individually and for me individually you may have felt a little bit overwhelmed by the last five or ten minutes with thoughts like well how on earth am I going to do that I don't have that knowledge I don't have the time necessarily to read into all of that that feels a bit difficult we may be tempted to sort of throw our hands in the air and say well I guess biblical interpretation is just for the experts then and that is not true we don't have to be scholars to become good readers of Scripture. Although, as an aside, I do want to say that we should appreciate the help of scholars where we can. Um, they are only men and women like us. Of course, we have to think for ourselves. But they're often immensely helpful. And you already rely on them anyway, because you read your Bible in English. And if you didn't have scholars, you'd have to read it in Greek. So you already rely on them. And I, I do want to say as an aside that uh, good scholarship is a gift to the church and we should receive it. But that is an aside. What I really want to reassure us this morning is that nothing I've said takes the Bible out of our hands. 
We can all grow in this, in being good readers of Scripture. Here's some practical ways. First, a lot of the really helpful information about historical context, um, about the stuff that we may not know but would be helpful to know, is contained in a good study Bible. Uh, We sell these at church. I ordered six new ones for this Sunday morning in faith that some of you might be inspired to buy one. Um, They're 30 pounds. We sell them at the price we get them. Uh, And I suggest that for your next birthday, you put this on your list. Natalie Starts was bought a study Bible, I think, by her brother. What a wonderful act of sibling love. And I would encourage you all to follow John's example and buy each other a study Bible. It contains so much that's helpful, put in a helpful way that helps us to become good readers of Scripture. It's an investment. But also, you can grow in this by coming along to many of the groups in church where we study the Bible. Uh, There's a Bible study that runs on a Monday, monthly, in the day, for those who are free in the day. If you're not free in the day, there's various small groups which will, as part of their life together, look at the Bible. Um, If you want more information, come and talk to me. But I want to make this offer as well, actually. If there's any of you out there that feel a desire to go deeper in reading the Bible and to encounter God more in Scripture and need help, if you come and talk to me, I will try and find you someone else in church who's been doing this a long time and can help you to make time to meet with you and help you to learn how to read the Bible. Okay? So that's an offer. If you want to grow in this, come and speak to me and we will find a way of making that happen. Also, I hope our sermons model this approach. I know we don't always nail it, and some are better than others, but on the whole, we try and preach in a way that models a responsible approach to the Bible. So I hope you grow from listening to the preaching. But the most important thing of all is to be spending time in your Bible. I think the more you read it, the more responsible you will become, even if you don't do anything else. Other things I think are necessary for maturity but if nothing else to be regularly reading your bible you will become a better handler of the word just by spending time with god in his scripture and that's something that we can all do in some way and next week part of what we want to do is interview a few people for them to give you some tips of how they have grown in spending time in the bible so next week we'll be full of practical help and encouragement to do that. I will also next week try and tackle any questions you have about anything I've said today or last week, so do text in. And I'm going to hand back to uh, Liz and Tim, Phil, but finally uh, I just also wanted to flag up a couple of books uh, that I'd recommend from this week and last week. So uh, here you go, yeah, here's two. So particularly if, if you want more on what we believe about the Bible, then these are on our bookshelf. I've ordered these for the bookstore at the back. Words of Life by Timothy Ward and Biblical Inspiration by Howard Marshall. Both really good accounts of what we believe about Scripture. If you are struggling with whether or not you can trust the Bible and you've got questions about its reliability and, you know, isn't it corrupt and how do we know and all of those sorts of things, this is a really good book that answers 10 of the most common questions people have about the reliability of the Bible. And finally, 
if you're convinced of all of that, but you want to go deeper in getting more out of reading the Bible, I cannot recommend the book more highly than this one. It's in its fourth edition, which is always a good sign because it's been bought again and again and again. You don't have to agree with everything they say, but if you read this book, it will really help you to grow in becoming a responsible reader of the Bible.